at our house, we enjoy a good game of hide-and-go-seek. I don't know about you guys, but we like to play at night. And we turn the lights off in the house, and it gets dark, and it's just more fun to hide that way. So we, we enjoy doing, like, doing it that way. And the other day, the kids, they wanted to play, so it was nighttime. They turned the lights off. They're getting ready to play, and, and they're going. And Pierce is trying to be brave. You know, he wants to be able to play in the dark. He's trying to be brave, but then he comes, and he just kind of whimpers a little bit and says, I don't like the dark. Can we at least use a glow stick? And have you ever had like a room like that in your house that, you know, during the day, it's fun. It's a bedroom. There's all kinds of toys. There's books you can read. There's things to do. It's a lot of fun. But then at night, when it gets dark, the same room that was so fun during the day then becomes a little spooky, you know, and there's, maybe there's monsters that like jump out of the closet or live under the bed, and so you've got to just keep the nightlight on, right, because there has to be a little bit of light because the dark can be scary. Sometimes we look at the darkness in our culture, the darkness in our world, and it's as if we walk right up to that place where the darkness meets the light. We say, I don't know that I want to go any further. That, that looks scary out there. That's dark out there. I don't know that I want to go any further. We're, we're more comfortable just pointing our finger and saying, look how dark it is. Look how bad it is. Because there's something inside of us that tells us that maybe the dark is more powerful than the light. And so we retreat and we, we back up. That's kind of why Paul's writing this section of Ephesians. He's writing this section of Ephesians to say, God has turned the lights on through his son Jesus Christ and you're now that light. But we all know what it's like to be in the dark, right? We all know what it's like. It's not a comfortable place to be. And we've, we've experienced that situation and sometimes in our own lives, right? Like, what am I going to do next? Everyone else seems to know what I ought to do with my life, but I, I don't really know what to do. I just wish someone would come and turn the lights on. There's this uncomfortable situation that I'm dealing with. There's this thing at my work. There's the health of a parent, whatever the case may be, and I don't know quite what I ought to do. I wish someone would come and turn the light on. That's what Paul says that God did through Jesus Christ, that he came and turned the lights on. And now that we are the children of light and we get to take that light to the world, to live as children of light, to walk in the light. That's his point here in Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 14. Ephesians 5, 3 through 14. Last week, Paul ended on this really high note. Right, This high challenge of, hey, all of you, you're, you, you who know Jesus, be imitators of God. This is your calling. Be imitators of God. Live a life motivated by love, giving yourself up for the benefit of others. This is a fragrant offering to God. This is beautiful. You must live the radical Jesus life. And throughout this section, Paul was drawing a distinction between the old man and the new man. As he moves into chapter 5, he nuances the distinction just a little bit. It's not so much the old man and the new man. Now it's more the contrast is between the world and the believer. How the world lives versus how the believer ought to live. Those who walk in the light versus those who are just living in the darkness. I want you to see it. Ephesians 5 verses 3 through 14. Paul writes, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are all out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. 
For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper. And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. These are some strong words. Paul uses some harsh language here. He's writing to Christians who are living in a dark culture. Talk about immorality, impurity, greed, it ran rampant, okay? If you want to look at the moral ills of America and say, oh, America looks like a rough place right now, maybe things are going in the wrong direction, America has nothing compared to ancient Ephesus, okay, and the rest of the Roman Empire. It's nothing compared to what was going on there, to these Christians that Paul is writing to. In in Ephesus, there was a temple uh, where you worship this pagan goddess. And the worship of that pagan goddess was conducted by prostitute priests and priestesses, okay? This was applauded. This was cheered in the culture, I mean, it was so bad. I mean, even worse than that, it's so bad that this was their religious action, that this was deemed an act of faithfulness, of obedience. This is how dark this place was. And Paul is writing this letter to these Christians, and he is challenging them about a culture that's pressing in on them in every way. And you go through, and Paul is saying, hey, don't, you can't even talk about the stuff they're doing. All of this immorality, this impurity, all of this greed, this covetousness, this idolatry. He's like, don't even talk about it. You, you can't get it yourself in a, in a conversation where you're joining in and you're laughing at the kind of jokes that they're telling. You can't join in and start telling the kind of jokes that they're telling. You've got to remove yourself from that. You can't engage in all of that talk. But why you don't engage in the talk, why you don't laugh at the jokes, he's still saying engage in the world. You still walk as light. You enter that dark place, all those dark places, and you walk as light. The answer is not just to point the finger and say, look how bad it is. Ephesus is bad. The Roman Empire is evil. Look at how Nero's leading. This is not good. That's not the answer that Paul gives. Did you see what he said? He said, you go into that place and you be thankful. You give thanks. You be thankful. It goes contrary to what we want to do. We want to complain and we want to say, oh, this is so bad. But did you, do you consider how Jesus did it? When Jesus came to the world, aren't you glad that he just didn't point the finger and said, man, you guys are broken. You guys are bad. You guys are evil. Look at the decisions you're making. Look at how you're living. This is so wrong. Jesus doesn't do that. You you look. When does Jesus get angry? It's usually with the religious people who think they've got it together. The people who are broken, the people who are living in darkness, the people who, 
you know, it's so dark, they're just de- disoriented. They don't, they don't even know which way is up, which way is down. Those are the people Jesus comes around and he gives them a hug. And he, and he loves them. And he stays with them. And he speaks truth to them. But he does it with love. He's not pointing the finger. See, when you enter into a hard culture, when you enter into a tough situation, the answer is you give thanks. You're thankful. Because you know you were that darkness. That's what Paul says. You were that darkness. That, those characteristics, the way they are living, that's the way you used to live. That's the way you used to think. Those are the things you used to laugh at. But don't do that anymore because that should not characterize your life. And anytime you engage in that, then you disrupt the fellowship that you enjoy with God. That's not, that's, that cannot be true among you anymore. Instead, give thanks. Be thankful that you're, you're saved from that. And now you're sent back to it to be a light, to turn the lights on. Sometimes we read a text like this and we, we can forget the context in which it was written. You, you have this small, tiny Ephesian church. Okay? The, the, their leader, the first missionary to, to Ephesus, Paul, he'd led many of these people to know Jesus. He's now imprisoned by Rome. I mean, the light has reached them. The lights have been turned on, but they're looking at this world and they're thinking, Paul, this isn't getting any better. Paul, look at the direction of Ephesus. It's not getting better. Worse than that, it seems like it's going down the tubes. It seems like it's getting even worse. You're in prison. Nero is a nut. I mean, the world hates us. You yourself said that the Ephesians are like wild beasts. I mean, this is where we are. This is crazy. What are we going to do? How can this church grow. It doesn't seem like things are getting better out there. Yeah, the lights have been turned on, but it seems like not for the culture. Things are getting worse. This place is dark. That's the culture. That's the people that Paul is writing to. And to these people who are pressed on all sides, where confusion just reigns, Paul says, God, through Jesus Christ, has turned the lights on. And now you must let light do what light does. And light reveals. Light lets you see. Light makes known. It exposes. Light shows you the way. Light tells you who you are and light tells you who the Father is. You you would think that this would be great news. You would think that people would cheer and everybody in the world would be all excited. But they don't because light does expose and just like the world, we're the same way. Sometimes we'd rather the light not expose the sin in our own lives. We'd rather just to keep some things secret. Just keep some things quiet. Because we can justify our dark habits, right? I mean, we, we can look around and we can compare ourselves to other people. And we can say, you know what, I know I'm no Billy Graham. I mean, I'm not, I'm not that. But hey, compared to most people out there, I do all right. I'm not like those people, you know, all these worldly people. I'm not like that. I'm, I'm okay. And so we get comfortable with a little sin because we think we can hide it. We think, oh, most people don't know. I gossip a little bit. It's not that big of a deal. You know, I'm a flirt. It's okay. I don't make disciples. I kind of hide out. It's all right. I complain. 
No big deal. I'm lazy. I do whatever. I hold grudges. I have some bitterness against people. Whatever the case may be. And we think, hey, it's not that big a deal. It's just this little bit. Nobody has to know about it. And, you know, it's just who I am. It's who God made me. That's just my personality. And we can drum up all kinds of excuses. And we think, you know, it doesn't really hurt anybody anyway. Nobody really knows. You know, Jesus warned that what is done in secret will one day be shouted from the rooftops. Paul is writing to this church, a church who's bewildered by what's going on in the world, a struggling church. And he says, you got to live in the light. you got to walk in the light as children of light. You can't keep these things secret. You can't engage in what is done in secret. And we think secret things don't really hurt anybody, but Paul knows that secret things are like weeds. And secret things, we think, oh, it doesn't really hurt anybody. But what happens, those secret things, they begin to, to grow. And they start growing, and they start growing all around your heart. And then that little place inside of you that you think is going to stay so small suddenly becomes your heart itself. And that's why you stop praying. That's why you stop reading the Bible. That's why you don't disciple your neighbors. And you don't tell anybody these things. You don't tell anybody what's going on. You don't reach out to anybody. Because you've always got another convenient justification in your mind for why you don't. You're busy. You've got this going on. But the thing you fear the most is that someone's going to come along and turn on the light. And so in our sickness, you know, and we talk about how Jesus came and turned the world upside down. No, 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 no. We turned the world upside down. Jesus came and turned it back right side up. And he does that for our lives too. But in our sickness, we, we start giving darkness power that darkness doesn't have. You ever notice that? You'll hear people say it. You know, I'm, I'm just trapped in darkness. I've just got this dark side of me. I've got this dark spot in my soul. I've got a dark sense of humor. You know, the world is just getting overtaken by the darkness. Darkness is overtaking the culture. Whatever, you hear talk like that. But listen, darkness can't do that. Darkness doesn't have that kind of power. You know what darkness is? It's the absence of light. That's all darkness is. Darkness is the absence of light. Dark is not dark unless somebody turns the lights off. Lights are on. Dark is not there. Turn the lights off. And the dark will come in. But it can't hold you. The dark can't put out light. It doesn't have that power. And you know that. Right? You walk into a room. You flip on the light switch. The light bulb goes out. What do you do? You go find another light bulb. Right? You go find another light bulb. And because the light bulb has blown out. What do you not say? Oh, man, the darkness just got another one. The dark just came in right out of the closet, jumped out, ate that light right up. Third one this week, darkness got. You don't say that. Why? Because it's not the darkness. It's not the power of the darkness. It's the failure of the light. It's not the power of the darkness, it's the failure of the light. If our culture is dark, it is because we have refused to shine. 
It's not the power of the dark, it's the failure of the light. The darkness doesn't have the power to extinguish the light. Even the smallest candle, all you have to do is turn on even the smallest candle and the darkness goes away. Have you ever been in a cave, you know, done one of those cave tours? And, you know, as you're in a cave tour, what does the cave tour guy always do? At one point in the tour, he shuts out all the, all the lights, right? He gives you the warning, hey, don't have your cell phones on, nothing like that. And they turn off the lights and they have you put your hand right in front of your face. And he turns it all off and right in front of your face, you can't even see your hand. Right? It's right there, but it's so dark you can't even see it. And then what will they do? Sometimes they'll, they'll turn on a candle and say, this is the way the first explorers of this cave would have explored it. And it's just a little candle. But it's enough to bring light to this dark cave. It's enough to see, to explore. It's not the power of the darkness. It's always the failure of the light. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Okay, he's talking to his followers, and he said, listen, you are the light of the world. Not you're going to be, not, not some kind of future tense thing, not if you hang around me long enough, you'll grow into becoming. Not if you study long enough, if you try hard enough, if you work well enough, you will one day be. No, it's present tense. He said, you are the light. You are the light of the world. No one lights a candle, Jesus says, and puts it under a bowl. Instead, you put it on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. And we chuckle at the illusion because we all recognize the silliness of putting a candle under a bowl. But many of us have. One of the first signs that you put your candle under a bowl is you get right up to the darkness, and you start pointing fingers at it. If you want to know if your candle is under a bowl, I guarantee you, if you're talking about how dark the world is, your candle's under a bowl. Because you're more comfortable in pointing fingers at the darkness of the world than you are in bringing the light and being thankful. And that's what Paul's talking about. Maybe you live in a neighborhood where you're, you're the only family who goes to church. And so... You don't want to make any waves. You, don't, you just kind of want to keep things on the down low. And you put your candle under a bowl. Maybe you go to school and you're in a school and it's a, it's a tough place to be a Christian. And you know, hey, if I start really standing up for my faith, if I start speaking out, you know, my professors would ridicule me. Other, teacher, other students might give me a hard time. I don't want to go through with all that. I, put my candle under a bowl. Maybe you, you work at a, a job, you, say, you, you don't bring Jesus to the workplace. That, that's not going to go well. This is a hard place. You don't, you don't understand what the office is like, Steve. It's difficult. It's, it would not go well for me. So you put your candle under a bowl. It's not the power of the dark. It's the failure of the light. And so our world gets a little darker and a little darker and a little darker. We've all had those experiences where you're in a place, you know, it's just dark. Maybe you walk into a room and you're, it's just dark. You can't see too well. You're, you're on your knees kind of fumbling around, finding the wall and going up trying to find the light switch so that you can turn the lights on because you know that the light will expel 
the darkness because you know there's more power in the light than there is in the darkness, but sometimes we forget it as we live our lives. You know, pilots tell us that in the darkness, if they're, if they're flying in complete darkness, that you can become so confused while you're flying up there that you can't see the horizon and you literally do not know which way is up and which way is down because the darkness is that disorienting. And you don't know where you're going. Listen, the Ephesian culture, a lot of our neighbors, coworkers, they don't know which way to go. They don't know which way is up. They don't know which way is down. They're disoriented. They need someone to come and turn the lights on. Maybe you're in the office you're in because Jesus sent you to go turn the lights on. Maybe you're in the neighborhood you're in because Jesus sent you to go turn the lights on. Maybe you're in the school you're in because Jesus sent you to go turn the lights on. Maybe we're living in the country we're living in in this generation at this time because Jesus has sent us to go turn the lights on. And all the darkness in the world cannot extinguish the light of one single candle. At the end of the first century, okay, even after the book of Ephesians was written, at the end of the first century, about 100 AD, the church was made up of approximately 25,000 believers. Okay. It's really not that significant of a number. Okay, You think of the population of the entire world, you've got 25,000 believers. We have local expressions of the body of Christ in America that have more people than 25,000. Okay? It was a somewhat insignificant number. It's a start. It's something, I mean, 25,000, that's, that's something, but when you consider the darkness of the Roman Empire, when you consider the evil of the Roman Empire and everything that was taking place there, it really doesn't seem like much. It seems like just this tiny, small candle. By the year 300, the church consists of over 20 million believers. How does that happen? How do you go from approximately 25,000 to over 20 million in just 200 years? And to answer that question, you, you must know that it was illegal to be a Christian. Christians were being martyred. Okay? And you say, well, the darkness won. No, the darkness didn't win. All those martyrs, all it did was make the light even brighter. And all those people at the end of the year 100, you need to understand this. There was no seminaries to train the, for the future leaders of the church. And all the apostles, all the eyewitnesses of the church, they were all dead. They didn't have any programs. There was no like women's ministry, youth ministry, children's ministry, men's ministry. They didn't have programs like that. I mean, they didn't even have a copy of the Bible. You know, the, the, the Bible had not been put together and, and, and distributed yet. You had little scrolls of here, hey, this letter came, and now I got this letter, and let me read this. But entire Old Testament, New Testament, in the year 100, they didn't even have that. There was no internet just to spread the message, no video, nothing like that. Everything that we look at and say, well, you got to have this to grow, they didn't have any of that. What did they do? They saw every place they went to as a mission field, and they gave their lives to discipleship. That was it. Everywhere we go, I'm on mission. And I'm thankful. 
I'm on mission. I've been saved for this. Discipleship wasn't a class that they took for a few weeks and then said, all right, I know what it means to be a disciple. It was who they were. And it was critical. It's how the church grew. It was someone coming coming alongside somebody else, a friend who had the light coming along a friend who was in the dark and turning the lights on, just modeling and teaching and sharing this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. This is how you live the radical Jesus life. This, this, this is what it is. And the disciples, disciples reproduce. You know, Jesus could do with 12 disciples what he would have never been able to do with 12,000 students. You know the number, you got a, an assembly of 12,000 students. You think, man, this is a great number. I can do a lot with 12,000 students. You can't really. You can't really, because what do students do? Students come, they sit, they stay, and they sour. Disciples, that's all about being, doing, and going. God wasn't in the business of making students of God. He was in the business of making disciples of Jesus. And this is Paul's message to the church. This was his growth plan for the church. It was not, hey, all right, we got to reach Rome, we got to reach this empire. Here's what you need to do. You got to develop this program. You got to have that program. If you have this program to reach that people and this program to reach that people and this program to reach that group of people, then you'll grow. That wasn't his marching orders. Instead, it was you're now children of light. Go and walk as the light, go make disciples. The, the people out there, they're your mission field. Go turn the lights on. So here's the genius of the Holy Spirit as he guided Paul to write. He doesn't guide Paul to write, hey, go and retreat from this culture. A culture that's pressing in on you at all sides. A culture that looks like it's just getting worse and worse and worse and not better. He says, don't just retreat Don't just set up camp and maybe put up a welcome banner where you can teach on the ills of society and then when people somehow figure it out, they'll come and they'll join. So don't do that. Go into the culture. Live in the culture with thanksgiving and with joy, with gladness, and turn the lights on. That's the marching orders. To go into a pagan world and live differently. To live this radical, impossible Jesus life that you can't live on your own. He's not asking you to do something that's hard. He's asking you to do something that's impossible. So the only way you can do it is with the power of the Holy Spirit. You cannot do it on your own. You will throw in the towel. You will complain. And this is so genius Because light does not expose sin by denouncing it. You know, the world is unimpressed by people complaining about the sin in the world. The world is unimpressed by someone who will come up and look at the darkness and say, that's really dark. That's really evil. That's really bad. The world is unimpressed by that. It always has been unimpressed by that because we all know it's dark. Everybody, you don't have to convince anybody of that. What makes an impression on, the, on people in the world is people who will live in the truth 
and exemplify the beautiful plan that God has for his people in marriage, like he talks about here. The people who will live the truth of what God said and lead this beautiful life that shows the joy of our salvation with our family. People who know how to handle conflict differently, that we don't look like the world, that we can talk. (laughs) We've had, Steph and I, over the years, we've had just several people, numerous people probably, who've come up to us, uh, just friends in the world, worldly people, who will ask us something about our marriage or our family or something and just say, what's your secret? Remember one guy, you know, I, I just want a marriage and a family like yours. How do you do it? It's not me saying, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Everything's so evil, everything's so bad if you follow that. It's just living the truth. Do we live it perfectly? No, we mess it up all the time. But what have we learned to do? We've learned to say, I'm sorry, I did this to you. Will you please forgive me? And then what happens? The unity, the fellowship, it's restored and we live in harmony together again. See, illuminating the truth with this brilliant example of our lives lived in healthy and holy obedience to God amidst the watching world is always the greatest example. But if you retreat behind the walls of a church, the walls of your house, you're just taking your light and put it right under a bowl. And we chuckle at the silliness of it, but we do it. That's why Paul concludes the section. He says, wake up, church. Wake up, sleeping Christian. Wake up, dead Christian. God didn't save you for this. God, through Jesus Christ, has turned the lights on. Don't just hide out under a bowl. Go shine. Don't retreat to a monastery or a convent or behind the walls of a building. Go live the radical Jesus life among a pagan and perverse world. That's what you're to do. Turn the lights on. And the history of the church shows us this. When the gospel of God's grace is lived out even in the most wicked of societies, the lights get turned on. All of a sudden, purity and Christ-like love begin to take root and it's spread and it's touched entire cities. It's transformed the practices of nations and empires. Because this is the power of the church. This is the power of the light. It's not in more programs. It's in more mission fields. We just have to be willing to go and turn the lights on. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you've saved us with a purpose. That you saved us with a plan. That The plan doesn't include just trying to build some really cool programs and throw up a welcome banner. But God, even as we look back at the first century of your church, it was always to go into a wicked world and turn the lights on. Share the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be a thankful people, a joyful people, an optimistic people. Because we look to you. And you're a good God, a God who loves. So God, in our world, in our culture, help us not to point the finger, but help us to go with joy and thanksgiving and live a life illumined by the power of the gospel.
to share Jesus and impact people. We need your help to do it. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.